You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In this, our conclusion to the course on Scripture, Tradition, Magisterium, Norms of Catholic Faith, we're going to begin by talking about and clarifying a little further the response due by Catholics to different kinds of magisterial documents. And this is laid out in Donum Veritatis, the instruction on the ecclesial vocation of the theologian, written in 1990. And you can find it in the Christian faith. Um, and um, and that is a, it's a very important, I think, document. Anyway, number, number one, the most important kind of doctrinal statement by the church would be a dogma, an infallible dogma. And that statement can be found in an infallible declaration, or it can be a, a statement that we find again and again in catechisms and creeds universally proposed by the bishops of the world as Catholic teaching. What's the response to an infallible dogma? We have a word for it. We call it the obedience of faith. That's a Pauline phrase that we, we read in Romans, okay? We also call it divine and Catholic faith. We call it divine and Catholic faith because it's faith in God that prompts our response to a dogma. Because what the church is saying is that this is revealed by God, this truth. So you're not trusting us, you're trusting in God by assenting to this truth, okay? So that's why we call it divine and Catholic faith. It's faith in God. It's not faith in the leaders of the church that prompts this. So that's a very important point. That's the highest kind, the most solemn and complete kind of assent that a Catholic is called to make. But there are also definitive statements that the church makes. And those statements are made um, not so much defining a dogma as in some way pronouncing on a matter closely connected with faith and morals, closely connected with revealed truth. Okay, and I'm going to give an example of a couple of those in a minute. But what does a response do on, uh, to a definitive statement that's not necessarily a definition of a dogma, but rather a definitive statement on some matter closely connected to doctrine? The, re the response is that we are to hold this teaching with firm assent. We're not holding it, we don't believe in it because it's not a, a dogma revealed by God, but we hold it with firm assent. It's a definitive judgment. And I'm going to read this uh, little statement from Donum Veritatis for you. When the magisterium proposes in a definitive way truths concerning faith and morals, which, even if not divinely revealed, are nevertheless strictly and intimately connected with revelation, these must be firmly accepted and held. What would be an example of something that's not ex itself revealed by God, but w something closely connected with dogma or doctrine? Well, one would be the biblical canon, the list of books that are to be regarded as inspired and infallible witnesses to revelation. Now, the table of contents of the Bible is one thing that is not in the Bible. I mean, it's in Bibles that we read now, but it didn't fall from heaven. God did not reveal a list of books that should be regarded as divinely inspired. That was discerned by the church. Of course, the list itself is not the Word of God, but it helps us locate and know where the Word of God is. So it's a very, very important matter. 
Okay? That's one example of a judgment that the magisterium would make that would be definitive. We'd have to firmly hold it. But on the other hand, it's not belief in, in a doctrine. Another would be a recent issue regarding women priests. Can we have women priests or not? Very controversial issue. The Pope issued a definitive judgment saying that we can't. And we're going to discuss both these topics in a few minutes because they illustrate how magisterium, scripture, and tradition all work together. All right? So, definitive statements, that's number two. Our response is a definitive response. It's firm assent. It's not divine and Catholic faith, the obedience of faith, but it's firm assent. All right, number three. The bishops and the priests and the, and the, the pope uh, teach very regularly in an ordinary way on faith and morals. Okay? When the, the bishop and the popes teach on faith and morals, uh, what is our response to be do? How do we deal with that? How do we respond to that in their ordinary, everyday teaching on in matters that are not proposed to be infallibly defined? What do we do? Do we just disregard those things? No. We have to offer a religious submission of intellect and will. You find that phrase very frequently in dogmatic, uh, in, in various, um, excuse me, magisterial documents. You find it in the Catechism, number 892. You find it in the Christian faith, uh, number um, 30. Okay, so religious submission of intellect and will, what does that mean? Let me just give you an example of that. Now, the church is teaching on birth control, on artificial birth control being something that is really incompatible with a Catholic approach to sexuality. That is a controversial teaching. And most theologians would say that it's not proposed as infallible teaching. Um, and, and that is a controversial, you know, that there is this debate about that. But I'm just going to assume here, I would take, let's say, the majority opinion that it is important teaching, it's ordinary teaching, rather than proposes infallible. It's ordinary teaching on faith and morals. This is, in this case, would be morals. Okay, so how does a Catholic deal with it? How, what does the response do? Um, well, religious submission of intellect and will, in my view, means this. The Catholic theologian and the individual Catholic needs to do everything that he or she can to wrestle in, with this truth and, and see the truth in this truth and submit to this truth. It needs to expose themselves to the documents, to read the documents. Okay? Now, for some people, it may be very easy. Um, and for other people, it may be very challenging to accept this particular truth. In, in the United States, it has been a tremendous challenge since the 1960s, uh, and there's been many people who refuse to accept it. Now, refusing to accept it in a, in, uh, is, is just not religious submission of intellect and will. But if one has trouble accepting it, one is having difficulty, is that invalidate their Catholic faith? No. Religious submission of intellect and will means the effort to put one's intellect and will in submission to the truth and find the truth in this, in this document. For somebody to walk away from the document uh, without reading it and, and disagree with it, that's a, a total violation of religious submission of intellect and will. Um, uh, the Catholic and the theologian has, has to do everything they can to understand the magisterium's teaching on this and, and to uh, find the truth in it and submit to that truth. Okay? Now we'll talk about the possibility of disagreement in a minute. But anyway, it's a different kind of response. A resp you can't, it's not just, fallible dogma is total obedience immediately. Okay? Ordinary teaching, the, word where, the, the phrase that's used is religious submission of intellect and will. Now how about ordinary teaching of the magisterium 
the prudential teaching and direction on disciplinary matters. What is the response that we need to have? Well, the response we need to have is external conformity to the directives of the magisterium. Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger gives examples of this in the history of the church. In the 19th century, there are many teachings. Uh, uh, we're used in America today to the, the idea of the separation of church and state and, and the idea of religious liberty for all. But we have to keep in mind that America pioneered that as a country politically. And in Europe, most of the, in the 19th century, we had many churches, uh, you know, many states with established churches, either reformed churches or um, Cap the Catholic Church. And so the idea of religious liberty uh, in a society was not a, a very clear idea in Europe. And certainly there are many times when Catholic leaders, including popes, spoke against the idea of religious liberty. And they saw the idea of religious liberty as a way to, to uh, relegate the church to the margins of society. Now, when, when reading the statements of the 19th century, we have to understand the time conditionness of them. And we have to understand they weren't relating a political issue of religious liberty and whether or not Catholics ought to accept and promote a, a, a government policy of separation of church and state. That's not something that's directly dogma or doctrine. That's a prudential judgment politically on how the church relates to the state. So it's important to understand that if the church gives a direction in a particular period, that, that Catholics need to treat it with respect and externally conform to it, but they may not interiorly agree with it philosophically. Okay? How about another, another, maybe another example of this? Uh, let's say in, around the turn of the century, there was tremendous, turn of the 20th century, tremendous uh, problems in scripture scholarship, and tremendous change was going on, and there were many dangers involved in taking new directions and new ideas. There are some people who were doing historical scholarship of scripture that were denying the divinity outright of the scriptures. And the, the Pontifical Biblical Commission gave directives to Catholic scholars that now we would look at as being totally obsolete. But at that time, they were safeguards, they were prudential judgments to help protect Catholic scholarship from some of the wild things that were happening in the Protestant world in biblical scholarship. So it would have been right at that time as scholars, even if, one, if, if scholars saw that these directives are overly restrictive, to respect them and externally conform to them. The important point is disciplinary matters are a whole different bag from teaching on faith and morals. And while Catholics need to respect teaching on discipline, it's not the same thing at all as teaching on faith and morals. Let's talk about dissent for a minute. Is dissent from church teaching possible for a loyal Catholic? First of all, you have to dis define dissent. And the way the Vatican defines dissent is different from the way many people define dissent. Dissent for the Vatican would be organized and public protest, sit-ins, after, you know, Humana Vitae came out on, on birth control. There was a priest in um, um, in Washington, a prominent moral theologian, that led a petition dissenting from Humanae Vitae publicly. And that, um, that kind of thing is dissent, very clearly. That's what the Vatican thinks is dissent. Now, most of us, when we talk about dissent, we talk about disagreement. I would say that dissent, organized public opposition to church policy like that, that's something that Catholics can't do and shouldn't do, period. Okay? That's journalistic and political pressure tactics. That's the kind of thing we do in labor relations strikes and politics. The church is a family. We don't deal with things quite that way. But how about disagreement? 
is there any room for disagreement or for having problems or you know, interior reservations regarding church teaching? Well, think about the levels I just mentioned. When it comes to infallible dogmas, when it comes to definitive statements by the magisterium on things like the canon, okay, there really is no, no room for disagreement. A Catholic needs to interiorly as well as exteriorly conform. How about on level three, ordinary teaching on faith and morals? The Catholic needs to do everything they can to see interiorly the truth of, of, of ordinary teaching such as Humanae Vitae. But what if the, the, the person still has interior reservations, still feels that the teaching as formulated is either incorrect or imbalanced or incomplete? Well, it depends who that person is. If the person is a theologian who has a responsibility to advise the magisterium, Donum Veritatis says that the right response is for the theologian to privately, rather than publicly, privately express the reservations that he or she has to the church authority. Because in many cases, those reservations could help church authority to formulate doctrine and statements better. On the, on the other hand, let's say you're a lay person. Uh, and and you're, you know, you, you're not instructed in theology, let's say. Um, the layperson needs to, as best as possible, see the truth in a teaching. But, um, it, it, you know, does not openly dissent from that teaching. Must that person accept that teaching even though conti after continual effort that person cannot quite find the truth or the fullness of truth there? Well, that is left really open. It's, that, that is, the religious submission of intellect and will does not mean the same thing as the obedience of faith, which is complete and total instantaneous ad adherence to the, to, the, to the dogma that's being taught. So there, there's room for disagreement. Now, when it comes to morals, when it comes to personal practice of the teaching, that's a different question. Conscience enters, enters into that. Here we're talking about intellectual acceptance of a teaching, and that's not a matter of conscience. That's a matter, a matter of intellectual integrity, okay? One thing that's important to understand is in, in matters of number, number three, ordinary teaching, there, there's, there's a process that needs to go on for people. And that process needs to be respected and the church respects that process of wrestling with the truth. Number four, an or, an prudential teaching. There are many times that people are, disagree with the prudential disciplinary teaching of the church in a given era. Interior assent, an agreement is not necessary. It is fine to disagree interiorly. It is, it is fine to discuss those things in a non-combative way, okay? But it is not fine to organize, uh, you know, full-fledged uh, protest and, and dissent uh, on matters like this. So there are different ways in which you can respond to problems uh, based on the kind of directive, the kind of teaching that we're dealing with here. The fundamental attitude always must be respect and faithful submission and loyalty to God's church and to the officers of that church. Okay? Uh, there, there needs to be that respect that's there. Even Jesus respected the Pharisees' teaching authority, and he told people, do what they teach, just don't follow their example. So, you know, we, uh, I, I'm not saying that uh, the church authorities are ever Pharisees, but individuals can be sometimes mistaken and, and not terribly uh, inspiring. But the point is, always, because of the office exercise, the office that is borne by the bishops and the pope, the fundamental attitude always has to be respect, loyalty, and an attempt to submit, depending on the kind of teaching that we're dealing with here 
that, that really uh, governs the kind of submission that has to be offered. Okay? I want to point out that Donum Veritatis 33 puts its finger on a problem that you see with a lot of people. It says that some people are theological positivists. The positivists were people in the 19th century who fundamentally said, and if you can't prove it as a definitive fact, then I don't accept it as truth. You know, they were, they were, it was a scientific philosophical movement. And there are some people who say, unless it's infallibly defined, I'm not going to listen to it. That's theological positivism. No, you can't do that. The ordinary teaching of the church, level three that we just talked about, demands in serious respect a religious submission of intellect and will, even if it's not infallible. What we have to understand, looking at the whole mystery of, of magisterial teaching and its authority and our response to it, is that the church is a mystery of communion. The church is not just a political organization. You can't treat it according to a political model of a democratic state. You can't uh, look at it as, as being driven by public opinion. You can't look at it as being driven by pressure and protest tactics. Okay, labor relations can't be the model of the way in which we deal as a faithful with the magisterium. It's a mystery of communion and the charism that is borne by the bishops and the pope is a charism given by God and needs to be gratefully respected. And also, I would say that all Catholics need to be praying for their officers, for the officers of the church, for the bishops and for the pope, that they would be faithful to, to their task, that their teaching would be clear, um, and, uh, and that they would be aided in the difficult process of discernment. Now, what I want to do in closing is I want to talk about two great examples that I think help clarify the way in which scripture, tradition, and magisterium are interdependent and inseparable. And the first is from the history of the church, and that has to do with the biblical canon, the way in which the actual books of Scripture came to be and the collection of Scripture came to be. The first thing that I want to point out is something that I touched upon earlier, and that is way back in, in the ancient days of the, of, uh, of the people of Israel, the events of, of salvation history beginning with Abraham were told verbally passed down, told by father to son, told in family groups, told at Sabbath dinners, told in synagogue services, before there even were synagogues, when, when people were meeting in the Sinai Desert for prayer and sacrifice in the tent that was in the desert, in the various shrines in Israel before the temple was built, in the temple itself. You know, the, the word was passed down. The stories were passed down. God's revelation were passed down verbally and lived out. There were documents, it seems, that were written that have been now been lost that served as sources for the Old Testament writers. And the Old Testament writers of the books we have now in their final form began their work, it would seem, in the 5th century B.C., all the way up until, you know, the, the 2nd century B.C. The books of the old, what we call the Old Testament were written individually during that time. And there was a certain hierarchy among them. Everyone accepted the five books of Moses. And eventually... Other books, what we call now the prophets, were accepted. And the last books to be written and accepted by people, what we call the writings, books like Proverbs and Sirach and Ecclesiastes and, and Wisdom and Psalms, okay? But that was a dynamic process. And the fascinating thing is, during that time of tradition, of, of, of uh, first of all, carrying on the word by word of mouth, and then the books being written and, and individual scrolls passed around and used in various synagogues, there was no official attempt, it seems, that we know about to set up 
a, a clear list of books that everyone had to have, list of scrolls in every synagogue. And what we find in the first century in the Christian era was this, that most synagogues throughout the Mediterranean world, whether the, the language of the people was Aramaic or it was Greek, they had pretty much the same collection when it came to the prophets and the law, and even most of the writings, like everyone used Psalms, because the Psalms were the prayer book of the, of the Jewish people, the song book of the Jewish people. But there were some writings that were had in some congregations, some of the later writings, that other congregations didn't have scrolls for and didn't know about. Okay? And there are some, some of those writings are things that we don't know about today and no one accepts as scripture. But others, like Sirach and um, uh, books like Judith and, and uh, Tobit, those kinds of books were used by some people and not used by others. And the Christians back in the first century were Jews originally and went to the synagogue. And the scriptures for them meant these books. And, and many of these, many of the books, uh, many of the synagogues had a very wide collection indeed. Some had a collection, uh, virtually all of them had the collection that included Tobit and Judith, but some even included books that we no longer have, like the Assumption of Moses or like First and Second Enoch. And some of those books are even alluded to in the letter of Jude. Okay? So the, the, the canon was a fluid collection, and it was a matter of tradition of various synagogues which books were accepted and read in liturgical worship and which ones weren't. Okay? There was no bound book yet, so there were collections of scrolls. Now, how, how did the Christian canon, it, it, right now the Jewish canon itself, it seems that it wasn't even formalized and attempted to be formalized until about 200 A.D. So, how about the Christian canon? What books did the Christians deem as Scripture? Well, at the beginning, whatever the local synagogue deemed as Scripture. And as time went on, the stories about Jesus after 30 A.D., after the resurrection of our Lord, the stories about Jesus in the early church that were passed on started to be, become writings. The first writings seemed to be Paul's letters. First Thessalonians is commonly regarded as the earliest of the New Testament writings to actually be penned and start circulating. And other Pauline writings in the 50s. It would seem, we don't know when the Gospels were written, but it would seem that the first Gospels, either Matthew or Mark, was written in the 60s or early 70s. And the later, some of the later books of the New Testament weren't finished until the 90s. So there's a period of time where there's nothing but Christian oral tradition and Jewish scriptures. And then Christian writings come about, and it took time for people to put those new Christian writings on a par with the Old Testament scriptures. How did that happen? It just happened through the experience of God's people through tradition. And in the second century of the Christian era, the first person to try to uh, propose an official list, an, an official canonical list, the word canon means measuring rod or rule, okay? And the first person to try to come up with that kind of a list was a heretic. His name was Martian. Martian eliminated all the writings except for Paul's writings and the Gospel of Luke. And so the church had to start speaking up a little bit. And what we find is in the second century, the first attempts for people to make lists of all the books or scrolls that are accepted as Christian scriptures. And what we find is, by the end of the second century, St. Irenaeus, one of the fathers of the church, in his great book Against Heresies, you find quotes from virtually every New Testament book, except a few obscure ones like 3 John and, and Jude. And you find lists coming out. There's a list from Rome called the Muratorian Canon, and that has just about everything we have in it. 
but it's not an official list by the Pope. We don't actually know who put the list together. Um, we find local councils coming up with lists. We find certain fathers of the church informally, non-officially, mentioning lists. Local councils like in North Africa, councils of Carthage. There was no need, really, for an official universal list because tradition, over time, had pretty much sifted out the books that everyone accepted. Okay? So tradition, first of all, preceded Scripture. Scripture is a written a form of the key gospel traditions. And then it's tradition that helps discern which books actually are authentic. See, there were books floating around in the first century and the second century, probably more in the second century, that had names of apostles on them. And some of the, like the Gospel of Thomas, which we now have. It was lost for many years, discovered in the 1940s. And there's actually some people today who are arguing it ought to be included in the Gospels. But the Gospel of Thomas was rejected, as was the Gospel of the, the Egyptians, as were certain other letters. Why were they rejected by God's people? Okay, why was that? What was the criterion used for the discernment of authentic scriptures? Let me just share that with you. First of all, they had to be of apostolic origin, come from the time of the apostles, because this is a primary, this scriptures, the, the, what scriptures were in the New Testament scriptures, primary record and expression, inspired by the spirit of the apostolic tradition, of the, the apostolic preaching and teaching, okay? That's what they were. So what we have is, we have, they have to be connected with the apostles. So late writings were disqualified. There was one writing, a letter of Clement, written in 95 AD. Clement is the third successor as Bishop of Rome from St. Peter. He knew Peter or had some contact with him, but it was too far away from the apostolic era, so you know, it, it was disqualified over time. Okay? But, but other things had apostles' names on them, like the, apostle, the Gospel of Thomas. How did they discern that this was not really from Thomas? Here's how. Number one, the, right, the, the doctrine in there did not fit with the tradition, the norm of faith, the canon of the tradition, as one writer called it. Okay, It didn't mesh with the tradition that was handed on. Secondly, there was no church founded by St. Thomas that continually used this and could trace its origin back to Thomas. So apostolic succession, the churches founded by apostles and continuously, continuously had books read in them that said that, that, that these, you know, this was a gospel of Mark or Luke or John or a letter of Peter. It was that continuous reading in an apostolic church that said, yep, this is okay, this is Christian scripture. So the point I'm making here is it wasn't until the 16th century that the Catholic Church in a universal council came up with a definitive list. But what that definitive list was simply doing was recognizing what tradition had already sifted out in discerning the scriptures. The role of the magisterium in the canon of the church, the canon of the scriptures, was recognizing the word of God, the legitimate word of God as sifted out by tradition. And, and that's what the magisterium does. It is the judge and the arbiter of scripture and tradition, the guardian of scripture and tradition. So you can't set a war between scripture and, and tradition, between magisterium and scripture. The three of them are interdependent. And without the interdependence of the three, we have a crisis of truth. And, and today in our society and in many Christian churches, there is a crisis of truth because the bond between these three, these three has been loosened. And that is why I'm very grateful to be a Catholic and to, to be in a position as a loyal Catholic where I, I know that 
I can always locate the truth. Because of the charism of infallibility, and because of the gift of the magisterium of the church, I can always locate and interpret rightly scripture and tradition. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.